All right, uh, good morning, beloved. How are we doing this morning? Are we hanging in there? Good. Um, good. So if you, I, I think it would be fun to start with a little exercise. Um, so if you could describe your week in one word, what would it be? And don't, don't say it yet. Um, we'll get to that in a second. Um, but kind of uh, positive or negative, I would like to kind of hear how everybody's doing. It's helpful for me as we get into this thing to kind of get a pulse on uh, how our congregation is doing. Um, so you could, you could choose an adjective. You could say like, oh, this week has been kind of confusing. Or I know the, the Barbie movie came out, so your word could just be Barbie. Or just be, <laughs> be creative with it. Um, so, yeah, I know, that, I know that some of us have had uh, really hard and, and challenging weeks, and others of us have had really beautiful and uplifting weeks. And I think it's, it's uh, good for us as a church to kind of name that. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I'll, I'll give us just a second, just like 10 seconds or so, just to like think a little bit about this week. And I think of a word that you would uh, use to, to describe it. So I'll give us just 10 seconds just to, to sit here and think. So. Okay. Are we ready? On the count of three... We're all going to shout out our word. You don't have to shout it, but you can say it loudly if you want. Um, yeah, so on the count of three. Ready? One, two, three. Nice. Ah, yeah. Nice job, guys. That was, that was a, great, a great response. And I heard a bunch of different things in there. It gets kind of muddled up here, so no specifics, but it's okay. Um, yeah, so nice, nice job, everybody. And uh, I think uh, as, we, as we got into this thing, again, it's just good for me to kind of get a, a pulse on things. And uh, if, you, if you heard something around you where you're like, oh, that sounded kind of interesting, or, oh, that sounded like it sounded like I had a great week, or, wow, like, that sounds kind of melancholy, like, I want to check in with you. Make sure to do that after the service. Um, so check in with people around you, um, and, and, and that's kind of the point of this whole thing, is I, as I, as I hope our, our church can continue to be a place where uh, trust and, and vulnerability and authenticity are encouraged and learned and, and practiced. Um, so thank you for, for participating. I think it's fun to get a little congregational participation um, up in the way here, so I hope you enjoyed it as well. So uh, now if you'll, if you'll join me in prayer as we prepare to hear from God's word today, and I'll be praying a, a quick prayer from uh, St. Francis of Assisi. <clears throat> Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved but to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned and it is in dying that we awake to eternal life. Um, and in, in a church that I used to attend, our pastor would pray each week that attention would be drawn not to a speaker, but to the Savior. And that is our prayer this morning, loving Father. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. All right, so uh, this week we are uh, continuing our series on the major prophets, and, uh, and it's a series we're calling Prophetic Vision, that you can see up on the, up on the screen there. And uh, this summer we've allocated... Um, uh, one month to each of the three major prophets. So, so June, we worked through the, the book of Isaiah. 
right now we're kind of capstoning Book of Jeremiah, and then we're looking forward uh, in August for, uh, for the Book of Ezekiel. So I feel very privileged to have been given the opportunity to kind of bookend the Book of Jeremiah, both introducing it a few weeks ago and then uh, concluding it today. And I'm exceedingly grateful for, uh, for Tom's and Virginia's dedicated work um, kind of in those between weeks, too. Like, sincerely, thank you guys. It, it kind of uh, filled in a lot of the gaps that I, that I couldn't, uh, couldn't fill myself. Um, so I'm grateful to you. Uh, it's, in a jo- it's a joy for, for me to be invited uh, to preach again. I'm glad it didn't speak you know, too much blasphemy to not be invited back. So <laughs> I, I'm appreciative of that. Um, so for the, for the two weeks of this month, as we've been working through Jeremiah, uh, we learned, or uh, perhaps a, a better word is that we were reminded um, that uh, in no uncertain terms, humanity is in need of a savior. Yes. Um, and, and not only that, but our, our world is in need of a savior. Um, and we're, we're broken, and we're sinful, and we're, we're forgetful, and unfaithful, and all these things. And so uh, those, those first two weeks and their associated passages kind of hit that hard. And they did a pretty darn good job at communicating this tragedy, both of, of the human heart and uh, of this, this beautiful and at times disturbing world. Um, so uh, the, the, the kind of crux of the issue, though, is that Jeremiah doesn't just leave us there. It's a, it's a book of like some pretty profound hope as well. And we're, we're finally there, which is a real big relief compared to the last time I was up here. We're preaching on a much more hopeful passage. So I'm very, I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> um, so, so Jeremiah does not just leave his people there. He does not just leave us there. He also introduces his hurting people to the promise of a savior. Um, and uh, this was communicated really beautifully last week by Virginia. Again, thank you. Um, so this, this broken and sinful people are, are given hope that they'll be not left alone in their captivity and their sin, are not left to their own devices. No, the God of Israel plans to restore his people, and his plans are to do so through a person. Right? So that was introduced last week, through a person, through a righteous Savior, who is himself not only a prophet, but the prophet, who is not only a priest, but the great high priest, and who is not only a king, but the king. So, so I, I just wanted to uh, give us a glimpse. Like, do you see how this set of sermons has kind of been formulated here? How it's been organized? Uh, first, we get a glimpse at uh, at the the broken state of this world and its people. Then we get a glimpse at this righteous Savior who is promised. And then today, we we finally get a glimpse into what the world and what that people will look like when they're restored. Um, what this new covenant entails. What our righteous Savior's vision of the world is. Um, so that's our task for the day. Does that make sense? I figure I'd just give us a little. A little uh, catch up here. So um, up here on the screen, I will remind you of a little framework that I introduced uh, a few weeks ago when I, when I was preaching. Um, this has been a really helpful one for me. It's not totally comprehensive. You, you can't map it uh, perfectly to all the prophets, but I think it's a, it's a pretty helpful one um, and covers a lot of the kind of the main focuses of a lot of the Old Testament prophets. So up here, prophets are seen consistently reminding the people of three main things. Um, one, that the world is not as it should be, right? Um, two, that the people of God are not as they should be. And finally, three, this is the hopeful bit, that God is enacting his plan to restore his world and his people to the way they were always meant to be in perfect relationship with each other and with God. So that's the vision of Jeremiah, right? That's the vision of the prophets. Um, so again, not totally comprehensive, uh, nor is it the only way to understand the prophetic voice. Um, but I, I do think it, it, bow, it boils down a lot of what the prophets have, have, are focused on. 
Um, so in my, in my preparation for this sermon, I was looking into some different translations of the text, and I was consulting this Orthodox study Bible that I have. It's very cool. Um, but uh, and I, and as I was reading through, I found that the passage that I had just read in my Protestant NIV translation is not the passage that's in Jeremiah 31 of this Orthodox Bible. And I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Um, and so um, I, I don't want to uh, deviate too much from the message today. Um, but I did want to at least address some interesting, th- interesting things about the book of Jeremiah um, and, and, and how, it's, how it's been formulated. Um, so first thing is that the, the book is not always told in chronological order. You, like, you get one chapter that tells a story, and then the next chapter is a story that happens 10 years earlier, and you're like, wait, what's, what's going on here? Um, so scholars have a, a few different ways of, of explaining this. The first one is that you know, somewhere along the way, scribes made a mistake or something like that, and I think that's less likely. Um, and it, it, it's kind of like the Gospel of John, I think, where this is the, the second explanation. It's kind of like the Gospel of John where like all these, these uh, events are not necessarily in timeline order, and it, it's probably done for a theological reason, right? Um, so I, I think that's, that's the first part. Um, and the second part is a little bit more, a little bit more complicated. Um, this gets into my encounter with, a, with a different translations or different traditions of translation in my, uh, in my preparation here. Um, and so there are, the fact is that there are, there are very interesting differences between what's called the Masoretic text and uh, the Septuagint, uh, the Greek Septuagint text, uh, and they're very interesting. Um, so I thought we'd unpack it a little bit here. So I, I should have a slide up here which communicates uh, some of these things. It's smaller than I thought. I'm sorry about that. Um, oh, well. <laughs> uh, so over there on the, on the left, we have uh, the Masoretic text, which is like the authoritative um, Hebrew and Aramaic text of the, of the Old Testament that we've got. Um, and this is the basis for most Protestant translations of the Bible, right? Um, and the interesting, interesting thing about Jeremiah, which is what I ran into in my preparation, um, is that the book of Jeremiah is about an eighth longer in the Masoretic text than it is in the Greek Septuagint text, which is really, really fascinating. And so uh, going into the Septuagint over here too, um, Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible from the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC. Um, and this is the basis for many Orthodox and Catholic uh, translations. Um, so another, another kind of quick interesting tidbit about the, the Septuagint is when they, when they found these scrolls in uh, the community of Qumran, they actually had two different versions of the book of Jeremiah. Um, and the, and the, uh, the longer one is very similar to what we've got in the Masoretic text. Um, but kind of the, the, the conclusion that I want us to get to is that um, in this community, they had two different versions of the book of Jeremiah and they not only coexisted but they were, they were considered equally authoritative as inspired scripture. So I don't want any of those uh, translation differences or anything like that to like totally debunk us. We're like, oh my gosh, what do we do with the Bible? Um, these things, they do, they do not break the Bible, right? Um, and so I, 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 I bring this up for, for, for a few main reasons. I mean, the first one is a very personal reason. I, I grew up in a church um, that didn't really cover these things and I didn't feel like I was very well prepared to encounter them or even like made aware that this was a thing. Um, so I never heard about uh, translation differences or textual variants or biblical canon or anything like that. And then when I, when I got to Wheaton uh, my freshman year, I was, <laughs> I was walking down the, the hallowed halls of, of Fisher Hall, and, uh, and that, that's the dorm that I was living in. And I was walking around in the lobby. I was waiting for my ride to come pick me up to go to church. I saw my friend reading his Bible. This was the very beginning of the year. I was like, oh, I'm going to go say hi to him. Maybe we can be pals. Uh, it turns out he's like one of my best friends these days. Um, but anyway... So he, he's reading his Bible, and I was like, oh, I'm kind of curious. Like, what book are you reading from? 
And it, like, without even looking up, he just says, Tobit, and like keeps reading. I'm like, maybe, maybe I just misheard him. Like, I'll ask again, like, so sorry, can you repeat that? He's like, oh yeah, I'm reading from the book of Tobit. And I was like, that's not in my Bible. Like, <laughs> what's going on here? So, and that was that was my first encounter with biblical canon, right? So he's Catholic, so he's got he's got Tobit included in that canon, um, and so that was that was a strange experience for me, and is is something that I really wrestled with throughout college, um, and continue to wrestle with in some ways. But um, so I bring it up for that reason. I don't want people to grow up in the church and not be aware of these kind of things, um, like I was. Um, and then the uh, the second reason. That I, that I bring this up is I want to encourage us as a community of believers to like really think deeply about the faith and about the Bible um, and what it's all about. Um, so there are there are tons of amazing resources around here, and uh, I think Zach in our uh, congregational meeting this morning he mentioned like this is the the density of biblical scholars and wise people at our church is kind of astounding, <laughs> and we're like we're in the Wheaton area too, so so make use of those of those resources. Uh, there are tons of uh, professors and websites and podcasts and all sorts of stuff that you can, you can learn more about. This is just a little introduction that I thought uh, I would share. Um, so I know I probably lost some of you there. That was <laughs> but in, the, in the more academic side of things. Uh, so I apologize for the, the fire hose of, of, of information there. Um, but we're, we're finally getting there. We're, we're at the so passage. Yeah, th- thank you. <laughs> um, so yeah, finally we're getting into our, into our passage for the day. And uh, here, Jeremiah prophesies this new covenant, which we've, we've mentioned a little bit. And uh, last week, Virginia did a wonderful job introducing some more of the hopeful parts of Jeremiah. Yay. Um, and uh, we heard her speak uh, very clearly and very joyfully about the reality of this new kingdom um, under Jesus Christ. Um, so the ways of this world would be completely replaced by the ways of this, this new righteous savior and this new king. And our passage today is one of the clearest pictures of what we can expect in a world under the lordship of Christ. So this new covenant is unique from many of the other covenants that we've seen up to this point in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, and, and, and the word covenant, I'm glad we covered that today. It was perfect. Um, yeah, the word covenant refers to the establishing of a particular rela- relationship and a promise between God and, and between people. Um, so this, was, this is not a new covenant, or this is not an, a new concept, I should say. Um, but interestingly enough, this is the only time um, in the entire Old Testament that, that uses the word specifically new covenant, which is fascinating. I, I didn't realize that until I was doing some research. I, I got that from, a, from an African Bible scholar named Isiaka Kulabali. I'm probably butchering that name. I apologize. Um, but yeah, the only time in the entire Old Testament that uses that specific wording, which is really, really interesting. Um, and uh, so what, is, what does this covenant entail? That's kind of our task for this next, next few minutes. So verse 33, if you want to pull out your Bibles or uh, pull out your phones, whatever you like, uh, look with me. Uh, this is, again, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and uh, we'll start with looking at verse 33 really quick. The Lord says that he will put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And so the focus here is on how the law is written and where it is written. Um, so at Mount Sinai with Moses, the Lord had written uh, his commandments on these, these tablets of stone. And so the law was thus, it was something external to the people, right? That's, that's kind of the key here. Um, but now the Lord is saying that he himself will write this law on their hearts, thereby moving from this external system to this internal system where it's written on our hearts. Um, so Paul, Paul makes the exact same contrast between the old covenant with, these, uh, with the law inscribed on tablets and then uh, this new covenant that, that writes the law on their heart. So continuing 
on uh, verse 33 here. Um, the Lord says that he will be their God and that Israel will be his people. Um, that's like one of the most compelling uh, promises that the Old Testament makes and, and the New Testament as well. Um, but that, that shows up kind of all over the place and it's a good promise. It's a good promise. Um, so as we, as we covered a few weeks ago, the Israelites had, had sought after, sought after uh, the gods of the surrounding nations. They had forsaken the true God um, for gods of wood and stone, um, which is a bit of a downgrade. Um, and so in doing so, uh, they had forsaken their own identity as followers of Israel's God. Uh, so this new covenant is reinstates the people as they were always meant to be as faithful followers of God who know him personally and deeply. And because of this, this identity, they, they fashion the world around him, uh, around them uh, to express this connection with God. So alongside this, this reestablishment of Israel's identity as God's people is, is the promise of true and full knowledge of the Lord. Uh, so when, when, we, when we seek to fulfill our own desires or we seek out alternative uh, sources for satisfaction or for purpose, uh, we take part in an act of forgetting God. I, I think that's, that's a helpful phrase too. We, we take part in, in the act of, of forgetting God, um, of leaving him behind, of not knowing him fully. So... So in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden, that's kind of like the crux of the whole issue. Um, right, so Adam, Adam's and Eve taking of the fruit is not just an act of disobedience, right? Eating from the tree of knowledge of evil, uh, knowledge of good and evil is less about becoming aware of good and evil and more about making a choice to redefine what is good and what is evil on our own terms. That, that's helpful for me, at least. I, I, I think that's... Yeah, that's been, that's been, that's been a, a helpful way of looking at that event for me. Um, and so we go from saying, um, you know, before we eat the fruit, God knows. And then when we eat the fruit, we say, we know. <laughs> it's about us, right? Um, so this, uh, in doing so, we, we forget. We forget who God is. Um, so this, this new covenant presented to Israel entails a knowledge and a closeness and a vicinity to the Lord, uh, which has not been experienced since the garden, right? Um, so um, when, we, when we forget to remember the Lord, that, again, that's another key phrase. Um, when we forget to remember the Lord, we forget the Lord himself. And uh, so look with me really quick at, uh, at Judges um, chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. I think that I have this up on, on the screen for us as well. We just read this uh, pretty recently in our, in our Bible reading plan. Uh, so I'm, I'm sure some of you came across this. But um, so again, when we forget to remember the Lord, we forget the Lord. So after that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Um, so this, this, this spiritual practice of remembrance, right, of, of what the Lord has done, of who he is, of his mercy, of his kindness, of his provision. Uh, the Bible is like chocked full of reminders to express this kind of remembrance um, from beginning to end, like it, it's all in there. Um, so thus, in this new covenant, God himself will have made this knowledge possible by removing the major obstacle of human sin, which is good news for us. Um, and so Jeremiah 31, 34, we're flipping back to, to Jeremiah here. In verse 34, um, uh, God promises that he will forgive our wickedness and remember our sins no more. Um, so I thought I would talk a little bit about, about communion today too. I know it's not Communion Sunday, but um, so when we, when we take communion together and we hear the words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, 
do this in remembrance of me, we should immediately think about what that means given the context of the Old Testament, right? Um, so firstly, and, and, and most broadly, Jesus is binding himself to the story of Israel, um, and he's saying all these old covenants and these laws and these sacrifices, they find their fulfillment in me, in me, and I am, I am the bringer of the new and the better covenant. So in the Old Testament, it was understood that the, the life of an animal was, uh, was found in the animal's blood, right? Um, and so with the statement of this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus invites us to share in his very life. Um, fascinating. And he, he, he says, do this, do this. So it's an action, right? Uh, do this in remembrance of me. It's not a, a passive event that just merely happens to us, but something that we actually get to participate in. Uh, so when we, when we drink Jesus' blood, which like, that's graphic imagery, right? But that, that's what the Bible says. Uh, so when, when we drink his blood in the Eucharist, we partake of his very life and his goodness and his beauty and his mercy. Um, so in this way, acts of remembrance like that of, of the Eucharist are equated with participation in the very life and mission of Christ, um, which is a huge privilege for us and, and enjoy. Um, so finally, Jeremiah encourages his people that this new covenant will be an everlasting covenant. It will be an everlasting covenant. So verses 35 through 37, God confirms that his choice of Israel is every bit as sure as the laws that govern the cosmic order. I'm going to say that again because it's really cool imagery if you're, if you're looking at it. Um, the, uh, God confirms that his choice of Israel is every bit as sure as the laws that govern the cosmic order. Fantastic. Um, and, and so thus, through, uh, though, though, the, though the new covenant will bring some pretty profound changes, um, it will never annul the promises made to Israel kind of throughout the Old Testament. So that's, that's the key there as well. So uh, the author of Hebrews actually has a pretty lengthy, lengthy discussion on the Old and New Covenants. And, uh, and he or, or she, we don't we know who wrote that book, um, quotes, that, uh, quotes from today's passage in Jeremiah. So I thought I would... Uh, give a little give a little look at that as well. Uh, should have this one up on the screen. Um, so it says this: they, that is the the earthly priests, they had just set up in the in the context there. Um, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. That is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. He said, "See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain." But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is the mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people. Right? Um, so the author then proceeds to write out the entire passage that we, that we had read for us this morning. And I think it's the largest uh, quoted, like directly quoted Old Testament passage that's quoted in the New Testament. There's a little fun little tidbit for you. Um, but so it's, it's clear from this text that a new covenant is required. Uh, but of course, that begs the question, like, why? Like, what was wrong about the old covenant? Um, so did you catch that last sentence in the passage of Hebrews? Yes, we still have it up here. But God found fault with who? With the people. Yeah, that's the key, right? Um, so the author says, but God found fault with the people. So the problem with the old covenant was not God. It was not anything about how he kind of like set up the deal. Um, but it was, with, it was with people, 
Uh, so where the Old Covenant was limited and, and required all these repeated uh, sacrifices for the atonement of sin, so the New Covenant in Christ's blood offers a permanent sacrificial solution. Um, and then where the Old Covenant was based on law, where we, we can screw up the law a whole lot, <laughs> where the Old Testament was based on the law, or the Old Covenant was based on law, uh, so the New Covenant is based on grace. And again, where the Old Covenant could not offer direct access to God, but instead provided priests as mediators between people and God, uh, so now Christ is our great high priest, and we have direct access to the Father uh, through Christ and through the Spirit. Um, so that's kind of the, the gist of this, of this passage here. And I, I thought I'd end the sermon um, with a section from, from Henry Nowen's fantastic book, it's called Return of the Prodigal Son. Has anybody read that one before? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really a, a fantastic book. And um, it's, it's a collection of, of Henry Nowen. He was a, a ninth, or 20th century um, theologian, Dutch theologian. And uh, it's, a, it's a collection of his reflections on the famous Rembrandt painting of the same name, Return of the Prodigal Son. Um, so I think, I think many theologians, in my experience at least, uh, can kind of fall into the trap of seeking like such profundity and uh, complexity that they they lose sight of the the beauty and simplicity, um, and I, I don't think Henry Nouwen makes that mistake at all. Um, the simplicity of his thought does not at all uh, imply any lack of depth, um, but it is this very simplicity that makes his his writing extremely accessible and like unusually sensitive. Um, so I definitely recommend that you check out check out that book. And uh, believe it or not, uh, Nate and Laura recommended that I read that book like maybe two months ago or so, and here I am recommending it to you on that. <laughs> so there you go. Um, but uh, so I have the painting up here for us to, uh, to look at, along with uh, some of Nowen's reflections uh, included on the margins there. So I'll read them aloud. It's a bit of a long passage, so just uh, bear with me. I know the text is small and everything, um, but uh, I, think it'll be, I think it'll be worth our time. So, uh, yeah, there's the painting over on the right there. Again, I, I wish I could have done a little bit bigger, uh, but you, you see the father in the, in the red coat on the left uh, embracing the prodigal son, and then the, the elder son is, always, is off, off to the right there as well. Um, so, okay, I'll read this really quick. Uh, perhaps the most radical statement Jesus ever made is this, be compassionate as your father is compassionate. God's compassion is described by Jesus not simply to show me how willing God is to feel for me or to forgive me my sins and offer me new life and happiness, but to invite me to become like God and to show the same compassion to others as he is showing to me. If the only meaning of the story were that people sin but God forgives, I could easily begin to think of my sins as a fine occasion for God to show me his forgiveness. There would be no such challenge in such an interpretation. I would resign myself to my weaknesses and keep hoping that eventually God would close his eyes to them and let me come home, whatever I did. Such sentimental romanticism is not the message of the Gospels. What I'm called to make true is that whether I am the younger son or the elder son, I am the son of my compassionate father. I am an heir. No one says it more clearly than Paul. The spirit himself joins with our spirit to bear witness that we are children of God. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, provided that we share his sufferings so as to share his glory. Indeed, as son and heir, I am to become successor. The return to the father is ultimately the challenge to become the father. Which is, I mean, uh, look at that, guys. That is beautiful. I, I remember reading that and just like tears were streaming down my face. Um, so 
those those kind of those reflections kind of kind of blew my mind. Um, and and in his in his earliest reflections on the parable, now one identifies like most clearly clearly with the prodigal son, which I think we can all relate to in a, to some degree. Um, as this younger son who's rebellious and sinful, and then has this uh, this arc of repentance that brings him back. Um, but later on, he recognizes he recognizes kind of equal similarity between himself and the, the elder son, right? Um, so the, the elder son, uh, for him, obedience has become duty, service has become slavery, uh, which leads to a lot of resentment and bitterness for the, for the elder son. Um, and yet, the father's love for both his sons compels him to express this love according to their individual journeys. Um, so that's, that's key. Uh, the return of the younger son makes him call for a joyful celebration. Uh, my son has returned, um, he's back, and, uh, and I want to throw him a party. Um, and then the return of the elder son makes him extend an invitation to full, partici- full participation in that same joy. Uh, so that's the key there. And I, I think this is a, a really beautiful picture of this new covenant in Christ, uh, which was teased for us in Jeremiah. Um, so this, this is a world um, where both the rebellious and the resentful are met with an invitation to joyful communion, communion with the Father. And that's it. Like, that's Jeremiah's vision for the future through God's eyes um, as we go through this series. And uh, so this new covenant, this new kingdom with Christ on the throne, uh, where all people are invited into joyful communion with the Father. Uh, And that promise is set before us even today as we gather together as a church.